Hello, my praying people. I'm so excited to be back with you this week. In the last episode of this little mini-series that we've been doing these past few weeks on um, faith versus doubt, on how to pray, and then we kind of bumped into praying the phrases, like, is it right or is it wrong to pray um, if it be your will? And then in this episode, you're going to get the phrases unpacked. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you're in for a treat. I am sharing some um, teaching that I have done for many, many years, but somehow delivering this teaching to you right now at this moment in my life just gets me all excited all over again. (laughs) I have um, many good things to share with you. I'll be giving a personal update on some things going on in my own life in the next episode of the Prayer Clinic Podcast and uh, look forward to, to sharing that with you. I want to encourage you, if you enjoy the Prayer Clinic podcast, to please uh, give it a rating. Go ahead and subscribe to this podcast and share it on all of your social media platforms. It's such an easy way to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ and maybe for it to even be a testimony to those who don't yet know Him. So let's keep praying and be encouraged with this message. Way back in 2007, how many years ago would that be? Mercy me. Let's see, 2007 to 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Would that be 15 years ago? Oh my word. (laughs) I wrote a prayer study and it was um, a big one, like a 10 week prayer study called Pray Right. And it was actually, I think, the second book that I ever wrote or the second study on prayer that I wrote. Um, um, yeah, it has an, an introductory week and then nine weeks of study and I actually called them workouts. So I guess we were working out our prayer lives in this study and maybe I'll revisit this manuscript and, and rewrite or, or, um, repurpose or put it back out there for people to learn from. But when I look back at that prayer study, I realized that there were a whole lot of very solid, um, teachings that I did as a part of that study. And one of them was an entire workout week that we spent on the concept of praying in Jesus' name. And I told you in the last episode of the uh, Prayer Clinic podcast that I recorded that I was going to wrap up kind of this this um, little mini-series we were doing on what it means to pray with faith or to pray without faith and faith versus doubt. Those are the things we've been talking about and that I would capture some of the phrases. And we did talk about the phrase of, if it be your will. And then I mentioned that we would also then cover the phrases, in Jesus' name and amen. And typically, we use these phrases when we're closing out our prayer. It's almost like a formal um, benediction, like a sealing of the envelope and putting the stamp on the letter and sticking it in the mailbox. It's kind of like, in Jesus' name, envelope sealed, um, amen, lick the stamp, stick it in the mailbox and send it on its way. But there's so much more to these two phrases, in Jesus' name and amen. And in this particular podcast, we're going to unpack what um, those phrases mean so that when we're saying them in our prayers, we can say them understanding what exactly it is that we're saying. And therefore, we're going to be able to tap into the power, the very big power that we get to tap into 
as a part of applying not just those words to our prayers, but the meaning of those words to our prayers. So um, let's begin. And I'm going to begin by praying. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears to hear what it is you have for us, that you would open my mouth to say what you want said in these few minutes together with podcast listeners, and that together we would embrace the beautiful mystery of prayer, and that we would um, be excited about the privilege and the power that we have in our prayer lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So I went back and looked at some of my notes when I wrote that chapter, and I had a couple of really cute um, illustrations that came from the prayers of children. And I want to bounce into starting off my conversation by sharing some of those with you just for fun. So three-year-old Reese said this prayer, Our Father who does art in heaven, Harold is his name. Amen. (laughs) A little boy was overheard praying, Lord, if you can't make me a better boy, don't worry about it. I'm having a real good time like I am. And then another little girl, Caitlin, um, had been, well, this uh, phrase says that the, her daddy, Caitlin's dad, had been teaching her um, the Lord's Prayer, and they would repeat it at uh, bedtime. And one night she decided to go solo, and she got right up to the very end of the Lord's Prayer, and this is what she said. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us some email. Amen. (laughs) I love it. And then a four-year-old little boy prayed, and forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive those who put trash in our baskets. Actually, he might have gotten the words wrong, but he certainly had the meaning right. And then a a particular wife invited some people to dinner, and she turned to their six-year-old daughter and said, would you like to say the blessing? And the little girl said, I wouldn't know what to say. And so the mama said, just say what you hear mommy say. And so the little girl bowed her head and she said, Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? (laughs) Those were shared just for a few little giggles, because it is funny to listen to children um, begin to understand the concept of prayer. And I think, though, that the Bible is right on. Obviously, I think the Bible's right on. But when Jesus even encouraged us to pray like little children, because they don't make it so complicated. They're just praying what they're learning to pray, what they know to pray, how, what it makes sense to them to pray. And their prayers are ho- so heard in heaven because they're pure and they're innocent. And they come out of hearts that are that are eager to know Him. But it's not a laughing ordeal to um, pray and put the effort into prayer and yet not pray correctly. In fact, James 4.3 actually warns us that um, we ask and don't receive because we ask wrongly. So praying for the wrong things and praying in the wrong way is not funny at all. And um, we have been given some powerful promises from the very mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and every one of these promises are speaking of what we can expect when we pray in the name of Jesus. So let me read a few of these to you. John fourteen thirteen. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Then verse 14, right after that, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. 
And then John 16, 23, and that day you will not ask me anything. I assure you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And then verse 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be complete. And then John 16, 26 and 27, in that day you will ask in my name. I'm not telling you that I will make requests to the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And so the Bible teaches, and Jesus just reiterated in both um, chapters 14, 15, and 16 of the Gospel of John, that when we pray in the name of Jesus, that we will have what we've asked for. It's a, it is a path to the success of our prayer lives. Now, the question is, though, is simply saying in Jesus' name a, a formula for instant access to God and success in our prayers? Does it genuinely function like a postage stamp on an envelope and assure that our request makes its way to heaven and then is opened by God who is eager to deliver exactly what we've asked for as if he is um, personified by Santa Claus in the North Pole. Does God actually give us everything and anything that we ever ask in the name of Jesus? And if he doesn't, then is God's word ever not true? If God's word is always true, and if we even once or twice pray in Jesus' name and fail to receive what we're asking for, then what is amiss? What is going wrong? Wrong. So in this conversation that I'm having with you, I want to give answers to these questions, kind of clear up this seeming contradiction in our prayer lives. Let's consider and step into the meaning of a name. Why is it that it, that we're told to ask in the name of Jesus? Let's start by understanding the biblical significance of a name. Proverbs 22.1 tells us that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And in Ecclesiastes 7.1 says a good name is better than precious ointment. In the biblical times, names were much more than a way to identify one person from another. The names that people had um, were representative of their character or their destiny or their purpose. And the origin of our last names are similar to this. Like, for instance, my mother's last name was Smith. And most likely her European ancestors were blacksmiths or silversmiths, or I like to think they were goldsmiths. <laughs> but whatever they were, Smith was a, what became their name because that's what they did. God changed people's names sometimes in Bible times to represent their place in his plan. Abram became Abraham. So Abram, exalted father, became Abraham, father of nations. Um, Sarai... Um, became Sarah, and her name Sarah meant princess of a multitude. So um, Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. His name changed from supplanter or deceiver to one who wrestles with God and overcomes Israel. And so names go on and on. Simon's name became Peter because upon this rock, the rock of Peter's faith, Jesus was going to build his church. The name of Jesus itself carries with it his character, his destiny, and his purpose. His name does mean Savior of the world, one who saves. Listen to what the Holman Treasury of Key Bible Words says about Jesus' name. 
In modern times, many people name their children according to how the name sounds, or sometimes children are named after a caring relative. Our names became our identity, but not necessarily because the name itself describes us, we define the name. In ancient times, however, a name signified one's identity. A name described the person and was not just a tag or a label. In keeping with this ancient tradition, Joseph was told by an angel that he should name his son Jesus because it is he who will save his people from their sins. That's Matthew 1, 21. The name Jesus signifies two important aspects of our Lord and Savior. First, it means that he is Yahweh. Second, it means that he is the Savior. This is not our Lord's first name. It is his primary name. He is Jesus. He is Yahweh the Savior. Asus is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua, meaning Yahweh shall save. Although Yeshua was a common name among the Jews, the name uniquely expresses his, expresses Jesus' work on earth to save and to deliver. So my friends, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are praying inside of the boundaries of his person, his character. We're praying in Jesus' name. We're praying toward the same destiny that he has already secured, the same one that we have yet to grasp. We're praying according to his purpose. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying that we identify with him, but that what we're praying is going to be honoring to him. In fact, praying in Jesus' name means to pray, in three ways. I'm going to break these down for you. The first is we're praying by the authority of Jesus. We're coming in the name of Jesus, in his authority. We're praying in harmony with Jesus, not in disharmony or in resistance to or in contrast to. And then thirdly, we're praying our prayers that are sanctioned by Jesus. So let's talk about each of these three things that praying in Jesus' name means. Praying by the authority of Jesus, praying in harmony with Jesus, and prayers that are sanctioned by Jesus. The first one, when we pray in Jesus' name, we pray by the authority of Jesus. Um, there have been a lot of uh, places that we're not welcome to go because you'll see a door that says unauthorized personnel keep out. Or you might see a door that has a sign that says authorized personnel only. Well, when I see doors like that, my first response to a sign like that is, whoa, I have to stay out of there. I'm not welcome on the other side of that. I've got no business there. I need to stay where I am, even if what I want might be on the other side of that door. But there's other people who have personalities that when it says, you know, unauthorized personnel not admitted here or whatever it says, authorized personnel only, they say, well, I will authorize myself and move right ahead. <laughs> My husband's one of those kind of people. Years ago when we were in seminary, we were um, sent on a rescue call by his mama, she called us from Tennessee, we were in Fort Worth, Texas, and her aging and um, suffering from Alzheimer's dad had gotten away from home, and um, they'd lost him really for a little bit of time when the Dallas police, I think, called her in Tennessee, and she then called us because we were in Fort Worth, and we went over to Dallas, um, drove over there to the county hospital to look for grand granddad. Well, when we got there, um, it was a room full. There was a room full of people, you know, in a typical emergency room late at night in a great big city. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, we're going to be here for hours. 
there was a door at the emergency room waiting area that said no unauthorized personnel admitted or authorized personnel only. Honestly, I can't remember how the phrase goes. Anyway, I saw the door and I went, oh my goodness, and I sat down. Tom saw the door and he just pushed it right open and said, come on, we're going back here. And I thought, oh my word, we're in the wrong part of the hospital. We're going where we're not supposed to go. And do you know that not one person stopped us on the other side of that door? Everybody was so busy doing their own thing. They didn't even notice that we were there. Tom said, just walk like you think you belong here. And we walked like we thought we belonged there. And then he was able to pick up his grandfather, who was just sitting out in the hallway on a little gurney, um, eating uh uh, crackers and drinking uh, a Coke of some kind. <laughs> and so we got granddad, we packed him back up, we went back to Fort Worth, and we were able to um, make not a whole night of the ordeal. And the whole reason being that when Tom saw the authorized personnel only, he decided that there was no reason in the world why he could not go there. He did not allow that door to keep him out. Well, when we're praying, we um, are entering into a place with a God who is holy and just and righteous, and he's, he's rules, like he rules. He rules over all that is. He spoke the world into existence. He, he um, holds it all together. He knows the beginning from the end. He is high and lifted up, high above any ruler, any authority, both in the seen world and the unseen world. This could be tremendously intimidating. And who are we? You'd have to be pretty full of yourself to think that you could just march right into his room and ask for anything, even if you asked it humbly. But um, it, it is simply off limits. There's no way that we, um, as, as uh, how do we say, less than what he is, can we um, so much smaller than his bigness, can we enter into a place like that and feel like we're at all um, in a place that is okay to be? In fact, you can read all throughout the Old Testament of various um, scenarios where people happened to um, take it upon themselves to think it was okay for them to barrel in to the presence of God. In fact, if you remember way back in Exodus, when God's glory fell on the top of the mountain and Moses was told to go up to the mountain and to spend time in the presence of God in order to receive the instructions from God, that all of the people were told to keep their distance from the mountain lest they be smoked. They would be smote and they would be wiped out. They would be annihilated. And so the people kept their distance. But then later on, when the people began to get um, agitated and angry and frustrated and confused over the direction of God and the, and the demands of God, then they would rise up. One time they rose up against Moses and Aaron, against God's leadership. And what happened? The earth literally swallowed them whole. It just opened up and in they went. And there's several things in the Old Testament that allow us to see how off limits the glory of God is to um, man in his sin-stained condition. And then, lo and behold, if the glory of God did not choose to come to earth in the 
the wrapped up in the body of a man to lower himself and humble himself to become a man and to walk among us and to teach us and to show us and to be the personification, the actual bodily expression of God himself. And then you know what Jesus did. He himself took all of our sin and all of our shame and all of what separated us from a holy God. And he, God allowed it to be placed on Jesus's shoulders. And Jesus himself died, paid the penalty. Um, the, what, what, um, what consequence had to be exacted for the price tag of sin, Jesus willingly paid. He gave his own life in exchange for ours. And so when we're praying in Jesus' name, we come to God in the authority of Jesus. We can walk behind the no unauthorized personnel permitted or only authorized personnel permitted signs. We can walk and press through that door like my good husband did that night in Dallas. And we can know that we are welcome into the very throne room of God. You see, Jesus paved the way for us to be authorized. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, what we say is, we're coming, Lord, into your throne room the way that we've been invited to come because we come in the name of Jesus. It's by the authority of Jesus that we come. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, we enter into personal audience with God. Not by our own merit, but by his. Um, praying in Jesus' name means praying with authorized entrance to the heart of God Almighty through the beautiful, powerful, and precious name of Jesus. Secondly, when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying in harmony with Jesus. In other words, we are praying um, for the, the petitions that are aligned with the heart of Jesus. So um, when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying in oneness with him. This is just what Jesus um, prayed for us in John chapter 17, right before he was going to the cross. He was praying, oh God, I've come that they might be one, I and you and you and me and they and us, that we all might be one so that the glory of God could be seen. And of course, that's where he also talks about how the world's gonna know that we belong to God because of how we love each other. And so when we're in oneness with each other, when we're in cahoots, when we're we're getting along and we're encouraging and we're lifting up and helping to bear the load with each other. Just by doing that, the world recognizes an expression of divine love living among us. So um, when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying according to his purposes, his plans, and his will. You see, we're, um, we're praying in oneness with him. When we pray in harmony or oneness with him, we are marrying our desires to his good pleasure. You see, it's a it's a letting go of any agenda that would be contrary to what he would want. 
when he responds to these prayers that we yield to him and make one with his desires, we are sure when the answers come to point out that all the praise and the honor and the glory belong to him because he's the one who is worthy of it, not we ourselves. We would never consider ourselves worthy of such honor. You know, even if you think about in the New Testament, when Peter and um, John healed the man that was lame in the temple, when the people were amazed that the miracle had happened, they, their response to the people was, why are you so amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though it was by our own power or godliness that we made him walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus by bringing this miracle about. You see, God enjoys bringing honor to himself when he brings answers to the prayers that we pray that are aligned with his purposes and his plan. So when we pray in harmony with Jesus, we're entering in to the intimacy of sharing his heart. When we share our heart with his and allow ourselves to bow down under his better discernment, his perfect knowledge, his... Um, his love and compassion for us, when we allow our desires to be immersed in that, and then we're saying, in Jesus' name, and being satisfied that whatever results is what is his desire, then we're giving glory to God the Father. And then thirdly, when we pray in Jesus' name, we're offering prayers that are sanctioned by him, sanctioned by him. So praying in Jesus' name is kind of like a filter. Um, Lord, hear me and take what I'm saying and then rearrange it, change it, fix it so that you make it into what I really need. My friends, sometimes I imagine that when I'm praying, God and Jesus are sitting there side by side and, and Jesus is listening to me intently and translating my heart to the ears and the heart of his father. When um, every once in a while, he might kind of give a funny look because something I'm praying may not be um, really that, uh, how do you say, um, he might not be that proud of what I'm saying because what I'm saying might be contrary to what would please God. And when he hears that, I, I think of him turning to God or God turning to Jesus and saying, did she just say what I think she said? Surely she didn't mean it. And then Jesus smiles kind of a tentative little grin, and then he breaks into a laugh when he hears me say, in Jesus' name, amen. And immediately then Jesus turns to God the Father, and he goes, this is what she meant. And with that, long after I've gotten up from my prayer time and gone on my merry way, I sense that Jesus and his loving Heavenly Father linger on for hours discussing how best to respond to my heart's sometimes very confused little plea. So my friends, praying in Jesus' name is powerful. But don't for one second think that it's a secret formula or a magic wand. You see, God answers our hearts, not our mouths. Words are only as powerful as the hearts they flow from. So when we say in Jesus' name, we're dousing everything that we've talked to God about in the goodness, in the holiness, in the sacrifice, in the love of Jesus. We're allowing our prayer to be authorized by Jesus, 
to be in one with Jesus and to be sanctioned by Jesus. So the things that we're asking in Jesus' name, let's make sure that they reflect the heartbeat and um, the, the passion, the purposes of God. I want to transition here and talk about the very last phrase that I want to say, and that is amen. So what do we mean when we say amen? I think that um, it's a beautiful conclusion to the prayer. We know that when somebody says amen, the prayer is over. But amen means more than that. And I have to share with you that what I'm sharing with you came from, most of it came from an article that I read on a great website. If you've ever got questions, then go to gotquestions.org. And basically, you can just write in your question and an article will pop up that will help you um, answer it. So I actually wrote in the question, why do we end our prayers with amen? And here was the answer. The Hebrew word translated amen literally means truly or so be it. Amen is found in the Greek New Testament and has the same meaning. And so both in the Hebrew language and the Greek, nearly half of the Old Testament uses of amen are found in the book of Deuteronomy. Think about that. Half of the Old Testament uses of amen are found in the book of Deuteronomy. And in each case... The people are responding to curses pronounced by God on various sins. So each pronouncement is followed by the words, and all the people shall say, Amen. So when God is given instructions, and as a part of giving those instructions, he's delivering curses. He's saying, if this happens, then this is to be carried out. This punishment, this curse, this, this will be a result of that. And the people say, amen, it indicates that the people are applauding, agreeing wholeheartedly with the righteousness and God's um, righteousness, his, uh, how do you say, his um, position to be in the seat that gets to uh, uh, deliver such curses. And so when the people are hearing these curses, they applaud the righteous sentence handed down by their holy God by responding, so let it be. So God delivers a curse. The people's response is, so let it be. In other words, we align ourselves with this and we agree to live inside the boundaries that are set for us by the Lord God Almighty. And so the amen attested to the conviction of the hearers that the sentences which they heard were true, just, and certain. Now think about this. This is when God is showing people what is right and what is wrong and how, where the boundaries lie. I want you to live this way, not that way. And when you live that way, this will be the result. So be it. We agree. We agree to the rules and we will live inside the boundaries. Back to my article. Seven of the Old Testament references link amen with praise. The sentence, then all the people said amen and praise the Lord. Is found in 1 Chronicles 16.36 and typifies the connection between amen and praise. In Nehemiah 5.13 and 8.6, the people of Israel affirm Ezra's exalting of God by worshiping the Lord and obeying him. The highest expression of praise to God is obedience. And when we say amen to his commands and pronouncements, our praise is sweet music to his ears. Why is obedience the highest form of praise? 
It's because obedience is trust lived out. Obedience is our confidence in God fleshed out. When we choose to obey, what is it the old hymn said? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. When we trust, we're going to obey. It's us yielding ourselves. It's us humbling ourselves. It's us saying, amen and praise the Lord. It's us saying, the line is drawn here, so be it. I choose to live with the line here and praise the Lord, it is good. So this is where we draw the line, and it is good because I trust you. I trust your heart. I trust your character. I trust your knowledge, your wisdom, your discernment, your understanding. I trust your authority, and I choose to yield myself to it. Oh, my friends, too many people today have decided that they can live beyond the trustworthy boundaries that God has given us, and they, in their pride, their ignorant, arrogant pride, think that they have been the first ones to discover that life can actually be lived beyond the lines. But here's the truth of it. From the very beginning of time, God has given us the opportunity to either honor and praise his holy name by living inside the boundaries and the lines that he assigns us, or on our own free will and um, ability to go beyond those lines. The thing that baffles me the most is those many, and me sometimes included, who go beyond the lines and then blame God for the results of that, as if it's somehow his fault that consequences came our way. You see, you cannot be angry with God if you're not willing to be yielded to God. Amen is saying, I yield myself to you. Amen is saying, so be it, to where you've drawn the line. And so the way we live our amen is in obedience to the rules. And then we give praise to God when we are pleased to live that way inside the boundaries that God has set for our own good and his glory. The article goes on to say, most of the New Testament writers use amen at the end of their epistles. The apostle John uses it in the King James Version at the end of his gospel, two of his three letters in the book of Revelation, where it appears nine times. Each time it is connected with praising and glorifying God and referring to the second coming and the end of the age. Paul says amen to the blessings he pronounces on all the churches in his letters to them, as do Peter and Jude in their letters. The implication is that they're saying, may it be that the Lord will truly grant these blessings upon you. Isn't that beautiful? We say amen. We are saying, let it be so in your life. Let what I have petitioned, let what I have requested, let God's best for you be so in your life. When Christians say amen at the end of our prayers, we're following the model of the apostles, asking God to please let it be so as we have prayed. Remembering the connection between amen and the praise of obedience, all prayers should be prayed according to the will of God. Then when we say amen, or so be it, we can be confident that God will respond, so be it, and grant our request. 
And then my friends, one of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 that says, All God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus, so that we may shout amen to the glory of God. You see, when we pray the promises of God, we're literally praying those boundaries that God set. We're praying those expectations that God has told us that we can embrace if we choose to live inside the lines of his love. And when we choose to live inside the lines of his love and we take hold of a promise of a guarantee that he's given us in his word and we apply it to the circumstances going on in our lives that seem to be contrary to all that is good and not align with what is God's good purpose, then we apply that promise to that situation and we take hold of it and we keep our eyes focused on God, then we understand that that promise is yes in Christ Jesus, in the name of Jesus, that promise is yes. And we shout, so be it to the glory of God. And we live on this side of the delivering of that promise as if God's already done it because we trust him that much. Ooh, that my friends, when we can live that way and encourage each other to live that way. Woo! This morning, Tom preached on the dry bones rattling. We'll be hearing some dry bones rattling. And I'm telling you what. The church of the living Lord Jesus Christ will be rising up and experiencing the power of God like the world is eager to experience. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Prayer Clinic Podcast. I want to remind you that the Prayer Clinic is an organized way of um, doing intercessory prayer ministry in your church. But more than just like the intercessory prayer ministry, even though that's not like a tiny little thing, it's like one of the most uh, significant, powerful, important things we can be doing in the church. But more than that, The prayer clinic ministry will mobilize your church to pray. If you want your church to be praying more, the prayer clinic ministry can help you do that. Through the prayer clinic ministry, we connect prayer leaders with each other for encouragement, for support, for ideas, for... um, for education. Then we also provide resources galore for your people to be equipped to both pray for others, but then also just to grow in their own prayer lives. I want to encourage you to go check out prayerclinic.com to learn all about specifically the prayer clinic ministry. Participate in our virtual open house. Share this with um, the prayer clinic. If you like what you see when you get there, share it with the people that make those decisions in your church. And um, I promise I will talk to you. I will get on Zoom with you. I'll fly to where you are. Do whatever it is that I need to do to help you um, develop and grow a prayer culture in your congregation so that your people are praying. And God says, if my people pray, then I'm going to heal their land. And if there was ever a time that our land needed healing, it is now. So let's be about it. I pray my praying people. I want you to share uh, this podcast and then also check out the prayer clinic ministry. I look forward to being with you next time.
So my friends, it's October and this I think is quickly becoming my favorite time of the year. I love when the temperatures of the summer start cooling down and the beautiful colors of the mums and the leaves, they all just um, kind of celebrate the end of the warm, hot, steamy days of the summer and they um, give it a soft goodbye with their golden oranges and their warm reds and their cozy browns. And at this time of year, thousands of people head outdoors to soak in the little bit left of the warmth of the summer as they ward off the chill in the evenings with their um, beautiful campfires. It's the season of apple cider and s'mores and pumpkin spice. And of course, October ushers us into the holiday that I discovered is the one in our culture that spends the second most amount of money. I didn't say that very grammatically correct, but surprising to me, I discovered that besides Christmas, Halloween, um, not anything like a close second, but Halloween lines up as the holiday that um, the most money is spent. And it, I, I would imagine most all of the most money that's spent is spent on candy. Um, but before you get too concerned, I, I did discover that that, clo that not close second is like 75% of all the money spent on holidays is spent on Christmas. And um, even more money is spent on Super Bowl parties and the back to school season than what is spent on Halloween. But as far as holidays go, even ahead of Valentine's Day and Easter, Halloween is, um, according to one particular website, the holiday that um, is the most second most financially successful holiday of the year. Nevertheless, all of that money spent on candy at Halloween does create quite a fun holiday for children. And I don't think I've met a single child that does not look forward to and love Halloween. There's something really, really fun about dressing up in costumes and parading around throughout the neighborhoods collecting candy. And as far as neighborhood parties go, Halloween is definitely the Super Bowl of block parties. The neighborhoods in our community, they go all out. Parents and kids alike dress up and trick-or-treat, and many homes have adults-only beverage stations and party food spreads for the oversized and overaged trick-or-treaters. I'm not sure there's anything else that can even begin to compare to the community-building experience of Halloween, and we wholeheartedly participate in the fun. But as Christ followers in an ever-increasingly post-Christian world, we can't just paint our faces and don our costumes without asking, should I be celebrating this holiday? I'll let you come to your own conclusions as you listen to my podcast, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'm going to wait until the end of these messages, and I'm, I'm hoping to have three that kind of center on Halloween as we march through the month of October. And at the end of all three of them, I'll share how we are going to do Halloween this year and um, how we kind of approach Halloween in our own family. But in this the particular episode, I want to start with just talking about and educating you, us, on the origins of Halloween. The origin of our modern-day Halloween is found in Ireland, and it dates back way before the 6th century. 
the Irish people who were called the Celts, the Celtic people, celebrated the end of the harvest with roaring community bonfires. And this particular evening celebration signified the end of the summer as it crossed over to the beginning of winter. They called their holiday Sawin, Saw for summer and win for the end. So it was basically an end of the summer celebration. But more than simply a turn of the season and a celebration for the harvest, the festival was filled with uncertainty, with anxiety and fear of what winter might bring. You see, the turning of the summer to the winter signified the end of the light and the beginning of the darkness. But think about that. Think about life way, way, way back prior to our modern conveniences and think about how many people would die with just an outbreak of the flu. The flu has already broken out in our community. I can't even tell you. I've heard of 20 people that have gotten sick with the flu in just the last week, and it's the first week of October. A part of me wondered where the flu went during the two hours that co uh, two hours the two years that COVID ransacked our our area, and, but yet the flu still remains and it's still here and it's still strong and it has broken out. But back in the day when these people were celebrating their Sawin holiday, the flu would come through, and if you had three children, by the end of the season you may only have one. If you had seven, you may only have four that grow to adulthood simply because of childhood illnesses and diseases that would break out in the communities and that would wipe out people in the in hundreds. So just uh, it's nothing like our culture today. Death was very real. Death was very prevalent. There was not a single person living that did not um, that life was not impacted by the death of loved ones, both those that are old and had lived a long life, like most of our deaths are, are experienced today, but also those that were young and never had a chance to live life at all. So when they were kissing summer goodbye and entering into winter, they did not even know if they would see the next summer. That's how um, life was at this time when they're celebrating this holiday. And so in this way, the festival itself, the Sawin festival, took on a religious or even a spiritual dimension where the people celebrating believed that the barriers of the physical world and the spiritual world broke down during Sawin. And during that night, the time the sun went down on the night before the what really was their, quote, new year, the end of the harvest, the beginning of the winter, they believed that this barrier between the physical world and the spiritual world broke down, allowing interaction between the living and the dead. The bonfires were lit in hopes of warding off evil spirits, and the Druid priests, which were a secret society of religious leaders, they would light these fires and they would wear animal-like costumes in hopes of confusing the spirits so that they wouldn't know the difference between the living and the dead. And they would also make a raucous noise as they danced around their fires, dispelling harm from themselves and from their families. They believed that because the two seasons were transitioning on this one night, that transition itself created a crack in the boundary between the living and the dead, and that beings in the spirit world were allowed to enter the physical world and just roam about. The, the, the Sawin festival was rooted in the date with death that every living person has. 
And then it was fueled by superstition and spiritual belief that the spirit world was filled not only with loved ones who'd gone before them, but also with creatures that could shapeshift, animal-like creatures and other spirit, evil spirits that were up to no good. And so out of love for those who died, the Celtic people would leave out food and drink and open their windows and doors in hopes that their loved ones would find them and come in and spend time with them. And then out of fear of the unknown and the dangers of the coming winter, the people would leave out food and drink to appease any spirits that might do them harm in hopes that they would enjoy their treats and leave them alone. So these treats set out for the spirits from the spirit world were tangible expressions of their fear of death and of the unexplainable horrors of life. If proper food and shelter and provision were not provided, then these evil spirits would cast spells, wreak havoc on man and beast, and generally torment the living. If the proper treat was not awaiting to appease them, then they would respond with an appropriate trick, thus our custom of trick or treating. Others, in order to fool and evade the evil, the invading spirits, would themselves dress up and masquerade as evil spirits, and they might would be witches, ghosts, and ghouls. And again, we can see that the origin of our custom of dressing up as fiendish characters and creatures is rooted in this Celtic festival. Unfortunately, the perverted climax of this dark night was animal sacrifice, and the animal sacrifices were made to placate the Lord of the Dead. It was carried out by the priestly druids who would rip the hearts out of their victims and use the blood for religious rites. They'd also use the entrails and other body parts to divine the future and forecast the new year. Again, you can see the longing in the people to know what's ahead when they're faced with kind of a foreboding um, unknown future. The remains of these animals that were sacrificed would then be burned in bone fires, from which we get the popular word bonfires. <laughs> Sawin celebrated a broken barrier between the physical world and the spiritual one, hence why items such as ghosts have made their way into common Halloween lore. The festival evolved throughout the Middle Ages until Christianity took hold of the tradition. As I share all of that, I was reminded of several of my costumes as a child. I grew up in the 1970s. That tells you how old I am now, and it also dates me for how we celebrated Halloween. My family um, just saw it as a fun holiday. There was nothing. Um, we did not make any kind of spiritual connections to it. I did not know this background of it until I did the research now. I've, I've known a little bit of hints of the background of Halloween, but never put it together until I did so for this podcast. But I remember two costumes very, very, very well. One was my clever mama just took white sheets, just like on uh, the Peanuts characters. You remember Charlie Brown and Snoopy? And she would just cut out the eyeballs and we would drape ourselves with a sheet, immediate little ghost, as we <laughs> toddled around to our neighbor's doors and um, trick-or-treating to get our bags filled with candy. One of my favorite costumes, and I'll tell you why I thought it was my favorite, one of my favorites was one of those plastic masks, which are, how scary is that? We're like wearing, putting your little children in plastic masks that have the elastic bands that would get tangled in your hair. And you couldn't hardly breathe in the mask, if, especially if it was a little bit warm. You sweated, your face would sweat. 
But anyway, this particular plastic mask was of a witch, and it had green puffy hair that came out on the edges, and I loved that costume so much. I thought I was the best witch ever, and part of the reason I loved it so much is my little sister, who bothered me to no end because she copied me, followed me, wanted to do everything I, I was doing, and instead of being honored by that, I was um, undone by it, like a typical sibling rivalry would be, and she was terrified of my mask. I think, if I'm not mistaken, she would not even go trick-or-treating because of how ghoulish I looked in my little witch mask. But it is very interesting to have those memories in my own childhood, to think about all of the costumes that my children and my grandchildren have dressed up in, and to make the connections to this um, origin of this holiday. So, Christianity, though, then enters in to and impacts the world in a tremendous way. We do live in a world that has been powerfully impacted by Christianity. Um, the history of Christianity's merger with Sawin draws together even more interesting celebrations. See if you can follow this um, timeline with me. And I'm, I'm letting you know right now, every ounce of this information I got from websites by Googling um, Halloween and the origins of it. And I, I read from many, many different ones and then compiled what I'm sharing with you today. So if you want to know where my sources are, they're online. Uh, so let's talk about Christianity and Halloween. In 27 AD, Rome was celebrating a harvest yearly, annually, in the fall in honor of Pomona, the goddess of fruit. And the origin of bobbing for apples might have come from this celebration. The Roman general Agrippa built the Pantheon and used it for worship to the gods in 27 AD. In 43 AD, Rome conquered the Celtic lands and incorporated Feralia, which was a version of Halloween as part of their tradition. So they already saw that um, the Celts had the Samhain festival, and they came in with their Roman conquest and introduced their festival that celebrated the end of the harvest as well. In 100 AD, the Roman emperor Hadrian rebuilt the Pantheon and dedicated it to Cybele, the goddess of nature. Here, the Romans worshiped their gods in honor and pray to the dead. Then in 609 AD, Pope Boniface IV dedicates the Pantheon in Rome in a celebration which Gregory III later expands to be All Saints Day and All Hallow Even which is the the eve before All Saints Day. So you can even see here the beginning of Halloween. The evening before was called All Hallow Even, um, the evening before All Saints Day. So what the Christians are doing is taking a holiday that was already being celebrated by the world, the pagan world, and a celebration that came at the end of the harvest time, and they were saying, let us make this a day that marks a celebration for um, saints who have been martyred because many saints had been martyred up to this time. However, the Pope Boniface IV took the day trying to remove it away from that traditional celebration to get it completely away from the superstition of the dead and the living and moved it to mid-May. And he changed it to, um, uh, this is Gregory III, he expanded it um, and change the celebration every May 
to be celebrated in the Pantheon to the Virgin Mary rather than to the goddess Sabel. So the Virgin Mary takes the place, the worship and the celebration of the Virgin Mary takes the place of the worship of these goddesses, the Pomona, the goddess of the fruit, and Sabel or Sabeli, I'm not sure how her name is pronounced, um, which was the goddess of nature. Then in the years 400 to 100 AD, the dark, what we call the Dark Ages, we see a rise in witchcraft and many of our modern Halloween traditions. And one of the most important aspects of witchcraft was um, the number of celebrations that they held each year, which were called the Witches' Sabbaths. And the most important of those was known as the High Sabbath or the Black Sabbath, which occurred on October the 31st. In the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, and the rise of witchcraft, this Black Sabbath was generally a night of feasting and revelry. It was that feast that gave us many of the common paraphernalia of our Halloween, like witches on broomsticks, black cats, death skulls, and pumpkins. So much of our Halloween folklore today stems directly from this High Witches' Sabbath that was celebrated in Europe during the Dark Ages. In the 1800s, Christians changed All Saints' Day to incorporate October 31st and November 1, most likely in an effort to convert the pagan holiday. So they moved All Saints' Day away from May and back to um, the end of the harvest at the traditional end of the summer Sawin and the beginning of the winter, um, which was October 31 and November 1. Similar traditions were known to happen with um, Christmas trees and and their association with Druid celebrations, and that's another discussion for another time. <laughs> November 2 in 1000 AD gets incorporated into the All Saints Day celebrations known as All Souls Day, and Christians would dress up in angel, devil, and saint costumes. And so you see how Christianity is kind of embracing the holiday and trying to um, redirect it or um, redefine it. In 1556, All Hallow Tide, a three-day celebration that went from October 31 to November 2, involved Christians dressing in all black to mourn the dead and go door-to-door asking for food for the dead which could have been an origin of trick-or-treating that was started here. And, and what's interesting about that is why would the dead need the food? And who ate the food once the people went door-to-door and got it? I'm not sure about that. In the 1600s, when our Puritan ancestors came to America, they were far too biblically oriented to allow such occult practices. They knew that all forms of witchcraft were strictly forbidden by God as an abomination. And so the Puritans banned Halloween, claiming it's a Catholic holiday anyway, and the Catholics continued to celebrate the tradition for the next 200 years, carved turnips, which were what the Celts used to carve out and use as torches in their Celtic Samhain celebrations, turned into pumpkins, and participants asked for treats instead of food in their door-to-door inquiries, I guess figuring out that they are going to get to eat whatever they get door-to-door, and so they began to ask for that. 1800s, due to the potato famine in Ireland, many Irish Catholics flee to America and, of course, they bring their Halloween traditions with them. As is the case with most holidays in America today, various traditions have evolved since then. 
With them came many of their ancient pagan observances and practices, including Samhain, the Festival of the Dead, or Halloween. And this pagan practice took firm root in American soil. has been widely accepted cultural tradition ever since. Here, my friends, are a few Halloween traditions and their origins beyond the ones that we've already discussed. Why are the colors for Halloween black and orange? The traditional Halloween colors of black and orange traces back to the Celtic festival of Samhain. For the Celts, black represented the death of the summer, while orange symbolized the autumn harvest season. Black and orange. Bobbing for apples, I've already mentioned that a little bit before, but listen to this. The game of bobbing for apples has been a staple at Halloween parties for many years, but its origins are more rooted in love and romance. The game traces back to a courting ritual that was part of a Roman festival honoring Pomona. Remember Pomona? And how her festival happened at this time of the year. She was the goddess of, now this article says, agriculture and abundance. So the goddess of fruit, the first fruits, you know, the bounty. While multiple versions existed, the gist was that young men and women would be able to predict their future relationships based on the game. When the Romans conquered the British Isles in 43 AD, the Pomona Festival blended with the similarly timed Samhain, a precursor to Halloween. And so bobbing for apples, and I read that um, when you bobbed and got the apple, that somehow told you which guy you were going to marry. And um, another thing they did was uh, peel the apple. If they peeled it all in one uh, thread, you know, without breaking the peeling, and they tossed it over their their arm, the way that the peeling fell would also tell you who you were going to marry. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what their divorce rate was like and if that was a good way to pick a spouse or not. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the origin of bats. Bats were likely present at the earliest proto-Halloween celebrations, not just symbolically, but literally. As part of Samhain, Celts lit those large, large bonfires, remember the bonfires, the bonfires, which attracted insects, which in turn attracted bats. Soon, spotting bats became connected with the festival. Medieval folklore expanded upon the eeriness of bats with a number of superstitions built around the belief that bats were harbingers of death. Do you see how fear is being woven into all of these ways of thinking? We fear what we don't know. And um, uneducated, um, much superstition, lots of ritual, all of these things contribute to just um, an atmosphere that is just wrought with fear. And bats are a little creepy looking. You have to be seriously, you have to understand that. And when It's like mice with these big plastic wings on them. All right, devouring candy. This was an interesting thing I found out. The act of going door to door for handouts has long been a part of Halloween revelries. But until the mid-20th century, the treats children received were not necessarily candy. Things like fruit, nuts, coins, and toys were just as likely to be given out. Trick-or-treating rose in popularity in the 1950s, and it inspired candy companies to market small, individually wrapped candies. People began to favor the confections out of convenience, but candy did not dominate at the exclusion of all other treats until... The 1970s when I went trick-or-treating. <laughs> and that was when parents began to fear anything unwrapped. I remember having to throw out anything that was not wrapped in my candy bag and getting things that weren't wrapped, like fruit. That So that tradition really was still going on. And then I also remember getting these little peanut butter flavored taffy candies that were wrapped either in black or orange wrappers. 
And my mama wasn't fond of those because I think the word on the street was that those could easily be injected with some something poisonous for the children. So we didn't always get to keep all of those candies either. So I was surprised to find out that the candy part of trick-or-treating, which is really the main part of trick-or-treating nowadays, did not even start until the 1970s. And what is that, 40 years ago? So interesting. Now, witches on broomsticks. Why are witches a common costume on Halloween? Well, it's because in the Middle Ages, women labeled as witches. Now, the word witches comes from the Anglo-Saxon word witchy, which is W-I-C-C-E, or wise one. So these wise one, these wise women practiced divination. Such a woman would curl up near a fireplace and go into a trance-like state, maybe meditating, chanting, meditating, using perhaps even hallucinogenic herbs, uh, mushrooms, whatever. And superstitious people believed that these women (laughs) in that meditative state would fly out of their chimneys on broomsticks and terrorize the countryside with their magical deeds. Now, this sounds absolutely ridiculous to us, but think about the whole culture is so steeped in fear, in darkness, in, um, in uh, you know, stories that are told about this and that and the other, and things that are shadowy, that are hidden in the shadows. And so very much you could, it, it's not that big a bridge to cross to find um, fear in these women that, Uh, practiced divination and um, behaved in strange ways to think that they could mount up on their broomsticks and fly. In our next podcast, we're going to talk about the unprecedented rise of witchcraft in our culture today. But to wrap up this lesson on the origins of Halloween, as followers of Jesus, We've been given two great gifts to help guide our paths. One is God's word, the Bible. The Bible might not come right out and say, do not participate in any community activities on Halloween. And that's because it's a book written to span the ages and Halloween didn't even exist when the Bible was being written. But the Bible does tell us to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. Ephesians 5:11. Give no opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 4:27 Abstain from every form of evil 1 Thessalonians 5:22 Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good pleasing and perfect will Romans 12:2 The acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality impurity and debauchery idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians five twenty one. And then in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy eighteen nine through 12, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, Do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. 
Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. The Lord and his kingdom are diametrically opposed to the practices that are at the origin of Halloween. The Celtic practices that um, that uh, exploited the fear of the unknown has the devil written all over it. It's a worship of darkness. It's a worship that is driven by fear. It's a worship that's driven by all of the wickedness and the evil and the things that rob us of the goodness of life in the land of the living. And so when Jesus came and when he established his kingdom, he's made a very large distinction between how he wants to um, expand the kingdom of light and how opposed his kingdom is to the kingdom of darkness that keeps people all bound up in um, in a, a false sense of security, uh, thinking that they have control of things that they do not, in a in an idolatrous worship of the created rather than the creator, thus um, stealing them from the freedom that comes in a relationship with the Lord God Almighty and not um, a relationship that's built on the deception of some um, goodness that comes out of what God has created. Now, goodness can come out of what God has created, but not that what God has created is not a God in and of itself. And um, it's certainly Jesus has come to cast away all of the deeds of darkness, to to separate us from those powers that want to um, keep us in bondage to fear so that we will bow down to um, lesser gods than than the Lord God. And so the Bible has plenty to say about that, and I've just hit the tip of the iceberg in that. But then according to the Bible, we are to abstain from much of what Halloween originally celebrated, and we're to steer clear of participating in any deeds of darkness such as idolatry, witchcraft, sorcery, spells, or consulting the dead. That goes on. All of those things go on today as a part of Halloween celebrations in um, those who are practicing um, those religions of darkness. Now, the question is, can we redeem Halloween as a time to be intentional in our witness? And can our children and grandchildren participate in trick-or-treating and enjoy the biggest neighborhood party of the year? The Bible speaks to this too. And he, Jesus, said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Mark sixteen fifteen. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew twenty eight eighteen and 20. Then he says in Hebrews thirteen sixteen, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And then in John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. So my friends, let us consider, well, you know what, before we consider that, that's what the Bible has to say. And I want to say in response to that, 
Is there a way that we could consider how we might turn Halloween into a great evangelistic outreach endeavor for our families? And here's a few ideas on how we can do that. We could circle up and pray for our neighbors before we go out and ask God to give us opportunities to get to know them better and to share the hope of Jesus with them. Another idea would be give out the very best candy in the neighborhood. I mean, make it something to talk about and share a kid-friendly gospel tract with the candy that actually shares the good news of Jesus right there wrapped up with it. Another is perhaps you could prepare those treats for the adults so that you have time to let their family pause and relax a minute at your house before they carry on in their trick-or-treating so that you have time to have conversations with them. And then another idea would be to follow up Halloween with a harvest gift of some kind and deliver that to your neighbors before Thanksgiving. Let Halloween be a springboard into ongoing interaction with those people who live in your neighborhood. I mentioned before that I had that we have two different um, gifts that God has given us to help us guide our path. And one is the Bible, and I've read to you scriptures. I'll include those in the show notes on this podcast. But the other is the Spirit of the living God who dwells in us and who guides and directs us. The Spirit convicts us of sin, and He also um, reveals to us the path that we ought to walk in. And so my, um, my advice to you would be, You make this a matter of prayer. If you're listening to this podcast and just knowing the origins of Halloween has um, unsettled your spirit in some way or caused you to have kind of a, a pause and maybe you're just not as comfortable as you were before, then then spend some time in prayer and in the word of God and ask God to reveal to you what he wants you to do different or if he wants you to abstain altogether. I read on one particular website, a particular family had um, been celebrating Halloween all the years, a Christian family, not thought anything of it until their daughter was in middle school and was challenged to do a project on the origins of Halloween. Their daughter became so convicted that they should not celebrate the holiday, that the whole family honored her and um, gave her value by choosing to stop their celebration because of her convictions. So I'm not here to tell you what the Lord might be saying to you. That's for you to figure out on your own. And I want to encourage you perhaps to consider these ideas that I've given you here and also to make sure that as you are leading your children, your grandchildren through the fun of the holiday season, that you use it as a time to teach them that every little opportunity you take, you can um, point out to them what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God and how that contrasts to um, being not a citizen of the kingdom of God so that they are not confused about that as they grow up and make their decisions of their own and they choose who it is that they're going to follow and and how it is that they will live. So there you have it. Halloween, the origins of it. Hello, my praying people. I hope that you're enjoying these amazing temperatures and the beautiful weather that greets us every year at this time of the year. I hope that you are collecting your pumpkins and your corn stalks, your hay bales. At least that's how we do it here in Tennessee in the fall. Anyway, I thought it might be fun on our Prayer Clinic podcast to take a deep dive into Halloween, this up-and-coming festive and fun holiday that... um, 
really turns into kind of like the Super Bowl of neighborhood parties. And I am going to take a few of our episodes on the Prayer Clinic podcast to um, discuss the origins of Halloween and um, what their spiritual connections are to us today. Hopefully, just having these conversations will help you and your family think through how best to celebrate the holiday of Halloween and how best perhaps even to redeem the time and make it an opportunity to be able to be bold witnesses to your neighbors. So for the next couple of episodes, we're going to talk about Halloween and some other subjects that kind of just go along with that conversation. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Prayer Clinic podcast where we talk about the origins of Halloween. Thank you so much for listening to the Prayer Clinic podcast and this particular episode being about the origins of Halloween. I hope that you feel as educated as I do now that I've done the research and shared it with you. Um, As always, I want to remind you that we at the Prayer Clinic are um, mostly interested in mobilizing our churches to pray, even as I'm encouraging you and your family to be out in your neighborhood praying and making a difference It's even more powerful if we can get our churches to um, learn how to be houses of prayer. If you'd like to learn more about the prayer clinic ministry and how we can mobilize your people to pray, please go over to prayerclinic.com and learn all about the ministry. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to take the virtual um, prayer clinic open house tour. It's an online open house where you'll see our prayer clinic ministry in action. And out of that, you can really experience what the prayer clinic ministry is all about. Until next time, keep on praying, my praying people.